You're listening to a message provided by Antioch Bible Baptist Church in Gladstone, Missouri. We intend this to be a helpful resource to you as you grow in your walk with Jesus Christ. This is intended especially for those who are unable to attend our worship gatherings and therefore were unable to hear the teaching of God's Word. This should not replace your gathering with our church as a member. If you're checking us out for the first time and are looking for a church to visit, we hope that you enjoy this content and that it impacts you personally. Thanks for listening. As a Christian, what makes you different than the world around you? I want you to think about that question for just a moment. As a Christian, what makes you different from the world around you? Jesus says we're to be in the world, but not of the world. So what difference should be in our life that sets us apart from the world around us? What sets you apart? What sets us apart from the culture that you and I live in? As Christians, we have been called to be set apart This is a term in the Bible in the New Testament that you'll see called holy. It means to be set apart. And Peter calls us to this holiness, this being set apart. In 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 16 or verses 15 and 16, he says, But as he, that's Jesus, who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So so Peter tells us that we have been called to be set apart as Jesus was set apart. That there's this holiness that should be a a characteristic of a follower of Jesus's life. Peter goes on in 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 9 and 10. He says it this way, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, listen to this term, a holy nation, a set apart group of people, a people, he says, for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So what does it mean for us to be holy in our conduct? What does it mean for us to be holy as he is holy? What does it mean for us to be a holy nation? Often the things that come to our mind that set us apart are not necessarily the right things. We have a tendency to think of clothes or movies or music or politics or education. And the list could go on and on. And we may not say it, but we think things like this. If you're a good Christian, you don't do this, fill in the blank. If you're a good Christian, you do this, fill in the blank. Yet the frustrating part that I've found in my journey with Jesus and being in the church, is that oftentimes the things that are drawn in the line in the sand where it's drawn keeps moving. 
Like just when I think I'm living a set-apart life, I'll hear another podcast preacher tell me that I need to draw the line in a different place. Just when I think I've got the right music and I've unsubscribed from the right channels and I don't shop at the right places, right? That all of a sudden I've, I've, I've arrived, I'm being set apart. Yet Peter says that God has called us to be a holy nation, a group of people that are set apart for God. So we are citizens of God's kingdom, right? And so what does it mean that we're set apart as citizens of God's kingdom? From the Old Testament, God has been setting apart a people for himself. And so we can go all the way back to the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 19, the children of Israel have now crossed the Red Sea. That miracle that God did where they crossed the Red Sea. And he takes care of the enemies of Egypt by bringing the Red Sea on them. And they've just crossed the Red Sea. And they've had a little bit of trouble along the way as they're heading to the promised land. They begin to complain about bread. And they begin to complain about water. So they're having some issues with God and he's brought them out there to starve them to death, to kill them basically. And they come to this place called Mount Sinai. And we come to this place called Mount Sinai, God invites, or Moses, yeah, God invites Moses to come on this mount to talk to him. And in Exodus chapter 19, we find the conversation that God has with Moses in Exodus 19, four through six, when he says, God says to Moses, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, listen to the terminologies that Jesus use, or God uses here, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. You'll be a set apart nation. These are the words, God says, that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So how are the people of Israel then, as they're on Mount Sinai, around Mount Sinai, how are they going to be a people that are set apart? What's going to show them to be a holy nation? Enter Exodus chapter 20. And what do we find in Exodus chapter 20? We find the Ten Commandments. And in the Ten Commandments and following, those were the things that would set the children of Israel apart from other nations. This is what would make them a holy nation. So God says to them, in essence, you want to know how you're going to be a nation that is set apart well, here you go. Here's 10 commandments and then here's some others to follow. So he begins in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. Well, that's going to set them apart from a culture where there were gods going everywhere. If you needed a god, you made up a god. If you wanted another god, you joined in with other nations and worshipped their god. So Jesus, God comes to the children of Israel and says, you know the thing that's going to set you apart is that you're going to not have any other gods before me. That you will worship one true God, Yahweh. 
This set them apart. And, but we understand that the Old Testament is called old because it's under the old covenant. So now we come to the New Testament and we're under this new covenant where Jesus is the king, right? Where Jesus is the Lord of our life. And we ask the same question, well, what's going to set us apart? What's going to make us, as Peter says, a holy nation? Enter Matthew chapter 5, 6 and 7. As citizens of the kingdom of God, these are the ways that we will be set apart from our culture. The Sermon on the Mount, as it is referred to, is the thing that will set us apart from the world that we live in because we belong to a different king. And his name is Jesus. John Stott, in his commentary on Matthew, says this of Matthew 5, 6, and 7, that this is the nearest thing to a manifesto, a public declaration of aims that Jesus ever uttered. For it is his own description of what he wanted his followers to be and to do. David Platt says this sermon teaches us what it means to be a citizen of God's kingdom. Matthew chapter 5, 6 and 7. If you remember back to our first message on the series that we're working through in the book of Matthew, we talked about how the book of Matthew is outlined by five teachings, if you'll remember this, because it is teachings that after the end of the teaching, it has similar wording. So when we come to the end of this teaching, it will say when Jesus finished. When you come to the end of his next teaching, it'll say when Jesus had finished. In chapter 13 and verse 53, when Jesus had finished. 19.1, when Jesus had finished. 26.1, when Jesus had finished. So all of these are markers or sort of an outline for us to follow that Jesus is going to give a teaching and then a narrative is going to follow. Then Jesus will give another teaching and then a narrative will follow. So we come to the first teachings section of Matthew's gospel. And I want you to notice some details. And this sermon today message is just an overview of this sermon that Jesus gave. And so I want us to look at some details about it from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Then we'll jump all the way to the end, Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. And it'll help us to see what's going on in this sermon, in this message that Jesus gives. So Matthew chapter 5, Verse 1, it says this, seeing the crowds. Now, we have to remember from last week in Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 to 25, what did we see about Jesus' life? His popularity is skyrocketing. He's teaching, he's healing, and Matthew gives us a little trailer of what's going on in his life and that we see that his popularity is growing because he's healing, they're bringing people to him. Wherever Jesus is, there's a crowd. And so the Bible says at this moment that he sees the crowd and he went up on the mountain. So where do we get that this is a sermon on the mount? Well, we didn't just make it up, right? It says it in scripture that Jesus went up on the mountain. So that's why historians and, and scholars have called it the Sermon on the Mount. Because Jesus around the Sea of Galilee goes up the side of a mountain and he teaches them. So it's a sermon on the mount. 
And when he sat down, it says, his disciples came to him. Now, when we read, when he sat down, we think, well, man, this must be a little small group gathering, right? It's an Antioch group get together with his disciples and he's going to just do a little talk with him. What we need to understand is that in Jesus' time, teachers didn't stand up and teach like this. They didn't have a, a podium, a stage to stand on. When teachers taught in Jesus' time, they sat down. So listen, I know the chosen is neat, but the chosen gets it wrong when they say Jesus walking with the music and the curtains open and he's walking to the crowd, right? Like that's not how Jesus would have given his sermon on the mount, even in walking around amongst the crowd, probably not how he gave it because teachers didn't do that. Teachers sat down and their students, their disciples would come and sit around them. So this is Jesus teaching because he is, Matthew makes a note that he sits down and his disciples come to him. In verse 2, he opens his mouth and he taught them, he teaches them. Here are some details for you about this sermon that we'll spend the next several months in. There's three chapters to this sermon. So Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It is the longest recorded teaching of Jesus. So in the whole Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, even the Gospels, this is the re longest recorded teaching of Jesus. Depending on your translation, it is 107 to 111 verses, these three chapters. It takes you about 10, if you sit down and read it in one reading, it takes you about 10 to 15 minutes. Let me give you a high level outline of what Jesus taught his disciples and in turn the crowd and in turn us today. I'm going to give you really three words to describe each <clears throat> chapter. So Matthew chapter 5 is the character of kingdom citizens. So Matthew chapter 5, you're going to see the character of kingdom citizens. Matthew chapter 6, you're going to see the conduct of kingdom citizens. So character, chapter 5, chapter 6, conduct. Chapter 7 is confidence of kingdom citizens. And again, this is a real high level view of what's going on in the Sermon of the Mount. But you have character, chapter 5, conduct, chapter 6, and chapter seven, confidence. What's interesting, if you notice, that it begins with his disciples. So chapter five and verse one, his disciples came to him. But when you come to chapter seven and verse 28, and you have those key words, and when Jesus finished these sayings, it then says there's another group of people that are there. The crowds were astonished at his teaching. So Jesus starts what it seems like is he's removed himself from the crowd. He sits down, he's teaching his disciples. And as time is going on, the crowds begin to form around Jesus. So this would lead us to believe that this is probably not a, a complete word for word translation of Jesus's sermon. This is probably Matthew summarizing Jesus's message because it probably wasn't a 10 to 15 minute message message, right? You can't go from having a few disciples to a huge crowd in 10, 15 minutes. It probably took 
days or time that we see is, is hours that were involved in this. And Jesus is teaching his disciples and return. The crowd grows bigger and bigger as he's teaching. And so this is probably Matthew summarizing for us the teachings of Jesus and what he wants us to know. Because we begin with the disciples and we end with the crowd. Then look at verse 29. And it says, for the crowd, what they noticed, for Jesus was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So this is the heart behind the Sermon on the Mount. This is what Matthew is trying to get across to his audience about this message is that Jesus was not like other teachers. That Jesus had all authority. And when you read the Sermon on the Mount, this is just not another good teacher who has some pithy sayings that you should follow. This is the King of Kings. And he has all authority and he is to be worshipped as such. And he is to be followed as as such. We, We know that from Matthew 28 and verse 18 Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And Matthew's account of the Sermon on the Mount is showing the audience, his readers who are mainly Jewish, that Jesus has all authority. There's been some good scribes. They've written some good things. But there's no one that has the authority that Jesus has. Why? Because Jesus is king right? That's the theme of Matthew. Jesus is king. So then the question becomes for us, then who is the sermon for? Is it for the disciples or is it for the crowd? Who is the sermon on the mount for? The sermon on the mount is for those who we learned last week have repented of their sin and are following Jesus as the king. Remember from last week, to repent is to turn and to follow is to do. To repent is to turn from darkness to the light that has dawned in Jesus. That's what it means to repent. And to follow is to do what Jesus does. So who is the Sermon on the Mount for? The Sermon on the Mount is for those who have repented of their sin, who have turned from their sin to Jesus and are seeking to follow and to do what Jesus has done. So over the next several months, we're going to spend time in this Sermon on the Mount. But as we spend time in it, I want to give you today some guiding principles, guiding interpretation principles that will help us on our journey through this sermon. A few years ago, me and my family had the opportunity to go to the Grand Canyon. And I'll never forget going to the Grand Canyon and spending the first half of the day just walking along the rim by ourselves. And as you, if you've ever been there, it's, it's overwhelmingly beautiful, right? It just takes your breath away. But what's beautiful about it is that every corner you go around, it's like more breathtaking. Like as we would follow the rim around, our hands would get sweatier and sweatier because it's more and more beautiful and more and more massive. And the first part of the day was wonderful. I mean, we loved it. But the second part of the day 
we had a guide. So we had had somebody at our church that said, hey, when you go to the Grand Canyon, I wouldn't go without getting a guide. And this guide's going to walk you along the edge and point out to things that you've never seen. So about noon, the guide shows up and he takes us and we walk along the edge of the Grand Canyon. And when we come around the edge of the Grand Canyon and we see it, it's still breathtaking and beautiful. But with the guide there, all of a sudden, the depth and the beauty becomes even more beautiful. Because he's, you know, we look at it and, it and it's like, wow, that's a massive hole, right? Like it's beautiful and big. It's incredible. But he begins to point out and says, look at those lines. When we talk about a massive flood in the book of Genesis, do you see how those lines are and how they don't line up? What that means is there probably at some point in the world was a massive flood and it caused those things to shift. My naked eye, I don't see that, right? Like I just see, wow, that's really beautiful. I wonder why those things don't line up. And then I have a guide and I look at it and think, whoa. And every scene, every stop that we would look at, he's pointing things out. He's like, you see that car? This has nothing to do with the beauty of it. But you see that car that's in the side down there? That happened like 50 years ago. A car drove off the edge and you can see the car. And so we're hanging over the edge and I'm watching my kids' lives flash before my eyes, right? As they're trying to see the car on the bottom of the Grand Canyon. But I would have totally missed that if we didn't have a guide. And so my desire is as we spend the next several months in this Sermon on the Mount, that these principles that I'm presenting to you today will guide us along our journey. That it will cause Matthew 5, 6, and 7 to not just be like, wow, that's a really good saying by Jesus. But that it will cause the words of Jesus to leap off the pages and grab our hearts and say, I've never seen that before. In all my years of studying the Sermon on the Mount, I've never seen that before because there's a guide that is directing us as we go along. So let me give you these four guiding interpretation principles as we head into the sermon. The first one is we must interpret the sermon from a relationship with the king, not for a relationship with the king. Of all the ones that I'm going to tell you, I think this is the most important one. We must interpret the sermon from a relationship with the king, not for a relationship with the king. Jesus is going to say things like, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. When you pray, judge not that you be not judged. Jesus is implying these are things you do as citizens of the kingdom of God. He's not saying this is for you to be a citizen of the kingdom. This is from being a citizen of the kingdom of God. You see, if we come to the Sermon on the Mount for a relationship with God, I just want to warn you, it will crush you. You will not be able to bear up under the weight of what Jesus says in this message. But this is what makes the grace of God so beautiful, right? is that if you have a right relationship with God through Jesus and you read the Sermon on the Mount through that lens, it's all by grace. 
You've been saved by grace and you live by the grace of God. So it doesn't crush us who are followers of Jesus because we know this is not from a relationship or this is from a relationship, not for a relationship. I would encourage us to view the Sermon on the Mount not as an assembly manual, but as an owner's manual. Assembly manuals show us how to put something together, whereas owner's manuals show us how to get the most out of what has already been put together. And so we come to the Sermon on the Mount already put together, already right with the king. And we're just looking at how does this relationship work best in the context of my relationship with the king. So this is good news today. For those of you in the room who don't have a relationship with the king, here's the good news for you. You don't have to get your stuff together to come to Jesus. You don't have to go at the Sermon on the Mount and do all these things and live out all of this stuff. And then Jesus will say, now, welcome to the family. Welcome to the kingdom. No, you don't have to do that. Because Jesus has come and lived the life that you couldn't live. And died the death that you and I deserve to die because of our sins and did what was impossible for us to do, rose from the grave. And the Bible says this, if we confess with our mouth and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And today you can be in right relationship with God. You can come to the Sermon on the Mount for the first time from a relationship with the King, not looking at it for a relationship with the King. I would invite you to do that today. Put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And I pray that if you won't do that today, That as we go through this sermon, you will feel the crushing weight of the expectation and that it will push you to surrender your life to God and say, only through you, Jesus, can I do this. And you will put your faith and trust in him. So we must interpret it from a relationship with the king, not for a relationship with the king. The second is we must interpret the whole sermon, not just parts of the sermon. I don't know about you, but if you listen to a lot of famous speeches, you'll often find in those famous speeches parts of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, right? They'll they'll pull parts of the Sermon on the Mount to try to prove their point on maybe not going to war or these certain kind of things. And they'll they'll pull out these pieces that fit their agenda And so we want to be careful not to interpret the the Sermon on the Mount in just parts. We want to make sure to interpret the Sermon on the Mount in its entirety. Uh, I think of like Matthew chapter 5 in verse 27 where it says, if your right eye offends you, pluck it out. (laughs) I don't want all of us to leave today and go pluck our eyes out. Jesus is using an exaggeration there to prove his point. But we have a tendency to do this with the Sermon on the Mount where we're going to pull out these verses to prove a point. We'll take Matthew chapter 6 and say, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So I don't need to even worry about clothes and food and all that kind of stuff. Well, yes, that, that is true, but I still need to work a job to provide for my family. 
I still need to make sure that I'm living out the whole of scripture, right? And seeking first the kingdom of God is also taking care of my family as well. And so we have to be careful when we're interpreting the Sermon on the Mount to interpret the whole sermon, not just parts of the sermon, so that we know the heart behind what Jesus is teaching. The third principle that will guide our study of the Sermon on the Mount is we must interpret the sermon with an evangelistic eye, not an arrogant eye. We follow the Sermon on the Mount, listen, so others will come to know the King. We don't follow the Sermon on the Mount so that people will be like, wow, I am really good. Don't you wish you could be as good as I am? And sometimes as Christians, we're known as being arrogant. And so we take scripture and yes, we should humble ourselves and and follow the word, but sometimes it can come across as arrogance. And so I want to encourage us to look at the sermon as an evangelistic opportunity for us. So we're going to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and know that the Lord's taking care of everything. So when our stocks are plummeting, when the economy expenses are going up and our budget is going down, we're trusting the Lord. We're seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So when people come and say, you don't seem to be worried, it's not like, well, yeah, I'm so good, right? It is, yeah, can I tell you about our church is going through this message that Jesus gave called the Sermon on the Mount. And in that sermon, he talks about what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and what it means when life gets difficult and hard and you want to have all this stuff, but you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and he takes care of everything. And he says, don't be anxious about anything. And this, so this comes from a relationship I have with Jesus. It gives me an opportunity to be evangelistic. And so I want to encourage us, church, as we're studying it, to not study it with an arrogant eye of, I can be better than everybody else. That's not the goal. The goal is that as we study the sermon and as we seek to live it out as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, that we could share Jesus with those around us. That they could come to hear of the hope that we have in Jesus. The last interpretation guide that I want to give you is this one. We must interpret the sermon with a humble heart, not a prideful heart. This sermon is going to say some pretty hard truths to us. It's going to say things like, if you lust after a woman, you've already committed adultery in your heart. It's going to say things like, if you're angry with somebody, you've already murdered them in your heart. It's going to say things like, don't be anxious about anything. It's going to say, broad is the way that leads to destruction, but narrow is the way that leads to life. And we are going to have a choice 
As we hear these hard sayings of scripture, these hard truths that Jesus will say, these are things that are characteristics of a follower of Jesus Christ. We have a choice like the children of Israel to talk bad about God and complain to him about how hard it is to follow him or we can humble our heart and follow him. We can come to him and say, Lord, please use this sermon to shape me into who you want me to be because I belong to you I want to live in a way that reflects you best. James reminds us that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So if we come to the Sermon on the Mount with a prideful heart, God's going to resist that. But if we come to the Sermon on the Mount with a humble heart, say, God, I want to be true to your word. And what you expose in my life, I want to submit to your kingship in my life. It'll totally change our perspective of it. There's a quote that I came across this week from a great preacher of the past named Martin Lloyd-Jones. And when he was talking about the Sermon on the Mount and this idea of coming to the Sermon on the Mount with a humble heart, not a prideful heart, he said this, I do increasingly understand those fathers and saints of the church in the past who used to say that we should never read the Bible except on our knees. Why? Why would the early church fathers and leaders of the church say that? Because we submit ourselves to the word of God. We humble ourselves to the word of God and reading the word of God on our knees does that, right? It says we're coming with a humble heart. And so this is the posture that I'm calling our church to approach the Sermon on the Mount with. On our knees as we study, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota nor a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. 
Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. And if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who's in heaven for you make his, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet one of, oh, only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your father is perfect. Beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, 
Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, do not heap empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who's in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'd be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan or span of life? And why are you anxious about your clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, don't be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself, for sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if your son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? And if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who's in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. 
For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes and figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Father, we come to the Sermon on the Mount with a posture of being on our knees, humbling ourselves before you and saying, we know We are insufficient for the task apart from you. The only way, Lord, that we can live out what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven is through your grace. And so please show us your mercy and your grace as we study through this. Help us to not come to the text with a prideful heart, thinking we've got it all figured out. We know what we're doing. Help us to come with humble hearts. And I pray today for those in the room who look at the Sermon on the Mount and think it's for a relationship with you. I pray that today, Lord, you would open their eyes to see that this is not for a relationship. This is from a relationship. And today, may they begin that relationship with you. May they realize their need for a savior because of what we just read and may they turn to you and put their faith and trust in you. Use this sermon, Lord, to profoundly impact our church. As I read this week, many revivals came from studying the Sermon on the Mount. Would you bring revival to our church from studying the Sermon on the Mount? Because we come to it with humble hearts, wanting you to move and work. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. You're always welcome at Antioch. If you desire more information, please go to antiochbbc.org. That's antiochbbc.org. God's best to you.